This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Art of Not Fitting In, a collection of not-like-the-other-girl trope observations. Ah, so, um, (laughs) for those who've been with us since the dawn of Dissecting Dragons, you will know that uh, we have actually touched on this subject before, but we're returning to it because Jules had a knee-jerk reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I... You know how the little icons on YouTube pop up and if you're a sensible YouTuber, you make them eye-catching in a way that can sort of produce an emotional reaction, shall we say. And one popped up and I immediately went, and that's almost a literal, literal sort of uh, example of what I I said. so I, w- I went in and I watched this thing prepared to be annoyed. And I was wrong because the person who did this YouTube video, and I will give details at the end, was absolutely correct. Um, and I think I had to take a step back and go, actually, the reason I'm annoyed is that I see the whole, oh, it's a not like the other girls trope flung around so much now. Mm. and applied to so many things where it literally just doesn't make sense for it to be applied. Yeah. That's why I was so annoyed at this this particular video with its obviously clickbaity title because it made me click on it and watch it in a grumpy state of mind. <laughs> um, but this person made some really, really good points and um, I went and I did a bit more reading and stuff, as I do, and I thought, yeah, maybe we could talk about this. So... Um, Consider this fair warning, because we will be hopping around a bit in this episode. Uh, we're not staying with one particular time period. We're not staying with one particular thing. And a lot of this is just things I've noticed and Madeline has noticed. And I'm sure Madeline will have her own take on it as well. Mm. Um, because, you know, uh, even though we did an episode on this topic several years ago, the central understanding hasn't changed, but the way labels are now flung around to stamp something as bad and ergo verboten. Um, it's become alarmingly more prevalent, and we would like to push back against that a little. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, fair warning given. Let's give a tiny recap before we jump in. Yeah. So, the not like the other girls trope uh, came out of the library of memes uh, created mostly by teenage girls online, uh, which highlighted the difference between them and other girls so for example things like she wears short skirts i like t-shirts or other girls watching beauty and the beast wanted the prince i wanted the library i mean guilty (laughs) (laughs) which yes to be fair that is definitely (laughs) but basically anything which cast the perpetrator of the memes as different and therefore edgy and cooler although that might not have been the intention and that is a really important thing to acknowledge yeah there there may not have been it there probably wasn't any genuine malice intended yeah Um, now, initially, there was a pushback against gender... This was a pushback against gender norms, rather, um, and the expectations, because not all girls are, you know, inverted commas, pink-brained and immediately drawn to what is considered feminine attire and pursuits. Yeah. Uh, there were and are plenty of girls who were tomboys or who came 
to traditional femininity, again, inverted commas, because God knows what it really is, Yeah. Um, late, or who fell anywhere in the millions of different types of ways of being a girl in between. Yeah. And while we're at it, um, I think we should probably squash the notion that all girls who are drawn to boy stuff as children and adolescents are automatically trans. Um, some maybe, and that's obviously very important, but um, there are going to be a lot who aren't. Um, and we really do, I think, need a broader definition of being a girl. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, the problem with casting yourself as not like the other girls is that it automatically makes the other girls this morass of uninteresting, unoriginal, and conforming dull idiots. Well, that seems to be what's being said, even if it's being said really unintentionally. Yes. <laughs> um, and this really wasn't the intention in most cases, as Jules says, but um, most not like the other girl types were probably highlighting their own sense of isolation and their frustration as friends and relatives try to force them into um, a kind of a recognisable mould. Yeah, and I have to say that's something I had first-class experience of. Mm. Um, and that I've managed, I think, over the years to acquire a degree of kindness looking back on this, even though... I won't say it did me damage, but it did cause me a lot of discomfort and even pain at the time. Mm -hmm. But now it's a case of, well, you grow up with what you grow up with. What becomes normal for you is what becomes normal for you. And if you see your daughter very much on the outside of that, I expect you have a genuine pang of anxiety and want to bring her onto the inside. Yeah. Um, otherwise it's it's a reflection on you isn't it so yes i mean there are definitely overbearing parents out there who who really do try and force their child into a mold that suits them without consideration for the child i don't think that was really the case with me i think it was just a case of what was considered at the time being well brought up and what was considered hmm, you know you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble with that kind of attitude in a few years time yeah and then there's, you know, the other, the, sort of the flip side of the experience, which is that another form of isolation that some sort of girls might have felt um, would have been um, in social settings with other girls their age, yeah. where, um, you know, kids can be cruel uh, and they can be cruel to one another. And I think that a lot of people will, you know, particularly in sort of secondary school, um, try to fit into a mold and not to get noticed you know i did i did have this thing which is that i i remember at school everyone basically adopting the same kind of haircut everybody adopting God, yeah. the same you know what i mean it is it's that people kind of wanted to look similar to one another they would all wear the same kind of fashion and clothes even if those clothes didn't particularly suit them as individuals and then every now and again there would be someone who sort of broke out of that because they really didn't want to move into that. Um, I mean, a small example for me is that I was told so often to straighten my hair because everyone else had straight hair and straight hair was seen as this, and uh, this very particular way that the hair was done was seen as kind of the prettiest at the time. Um, 
and I didn't want to do it. And so I was one of a few people who kind of was walking around with curly hair to the extent that I would get mixed up with other people with curly hair because <laughs> they just... <laughs> there weren't was, many of us. There, yeah. were, there weren't many of us. Um, so, and this was obviously for the girls. And so I think if you you would find yourself in that situation and if you did decide to stand out, you were usually standing out for several reasons. Um, and it could involve teasing and bullying and girls against girls and stuff like that, which I think did build up this mentality of the us versus them kind of idea. And that isolation of feeling like those girls, those girls who who like the Disney princesses, etc., stuff like that, they are the ones who are all interested in boys and, and dress in that particular way. They are the enemy. They are the bullies. And I am not like them. Um, when the reality is that most of those girls were also, you know, all different, all unique, all with their own interests, um, not all bullies, etc. Just yeah, everyone absolutely. going through a difficult period of their lives. <laughs> As being a teenager is. Um, yes. It's a small side sidebar there, but it's interesting how fashions shift around, isn't it? Because, yes, obviously Madeline would have been at school at the height of, yes, straight hair is the most beautiful. I was at school at the height of, you should really have properly curly ringleted hair. So I kept getting told to perm my hair because where it was long, it was more wavy and quite loosely curly in places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was long skirts, not short skirts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so everyone was letting down the hems on their on their kilts, and it looked bloody awful. I've got to say, <laughs> it was rolling your socks down so that they were kind of slouched around your. These were knee socks, so they were slouched around your ankles. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be sort of this floaty-haired, floaty-skirted, bohemian look, and it, you know, my school uniform did not lend itself well to that aesthetic yeah. <laughs> at all. <laughs> Um, anyway, unfortunately, the film and TV and even book industries picked up the idea of the not like the other girls and ran with it. And there had been, you know, a demand for more individual, better written female characters, quite understandably. Mm-hmm. But instead of actually investing in decent characterization, producers and writers went with the not like the other girl trope. Um, and it became subdivided into things like the goth girl, the weird girl, the geek, the manic pixie dream girl, etc. All of which, unfortunately, were presented in such a way as to fit perceived male fantasy rather than actual representations of what it was like being a teenage girl. Yes, absolutely. I, it did make me laugh. Though. I saw someone wrote a thing saying, um, sorry to say this, but your manic pixie dream girl is just... A girl, a bisexual with ADHD who needs to go to therapy. <laughs> it's like, <Just> oh, <laughs> yeah, possibly, <laughs> maybe. But essentially, it wasn't good, um, no. and fortunately, there was a lot of pushback um, against that idea. And things do see well; they did seem to be leveling out. Until. <laughs> yeah, it's the until. Um, anyway, the, the next two observations are basically things that I've written down, I think, and I don't expect Madeline to take responsibility for them, although I'm very interested in her take. Okay. Um, but firstly, it's that the trope didn't die, it became more insidious and wove itself into places no one expected or thought to look for it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the other one is that the pushback against this trope has overcompensated to the point where it's not the trope being criticised, it's any form of female individuality. And I honestly think this is even more misogynistic than the original trope was. So, those are the two things I think that have been buzzing in my bonnet recently. <laughs> yeah, and I think I would agree with both of them. Um, I I think you're right in that the pushback has kind of almost meant now that you get these female characters who are now trying to be everything to fit every single role. Or to be nothing at all. Or to be nothing at all. And it is just... It feels very odd and unrealistic. Um, and it's it's one of those things where you you don't really notice how much it's permeated until you suddenly watch something where it's not the case and you yeah. go oh my god i remember that female characters can be written well <laughs> which sounds so miserable but it is it's true yeah. um and i think it, it's probably also one of the big reasons that actually um, we're perpetuating this problem with the representation of, of women in fiction because when we read fiction from a young age reading fiction I didn't I didn't connect with most of the female characters I would almost always connect with the male characters instead and there's a number of different reasons for that both for me personally but also because of the styles of writing etc and who the main character was but when you have these female characters who are unengaging, who don't feel realistic, and people totally misunderstanding what it means to be a strong female character. A strong female character means a well-written female character, not yeah. a physically strong female character. Um, though, you know, we want to have some of those as well. Uh, it just means that you end up with this... these characters who are, you know, just, just flat, unlikable unrealistic and you can't connect with them in any way and so people don't like them and so we go through these cycles of then saying well the female character it doesn't sell so we're not going to use it or writers saying well actually i'd prefer to write male characters because i don't like writing i don't tend to like female characters etc and it just perpetuates this circle yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, right, let's talk about historical drama costuming. Yes. So, um, I think well, we need to we need to we need to breach it. The issue of the corset. <laughs> yes, this brings us to the corset. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the places the not like the other girl trope once uh, sort of ended up hiding was in various modern reimaginings of previously successful costume dramas. Yeah, um, we've done an entire episode on fashion and costumes, I believe. Um, and basically yeah. costumes have long been used to prop up or even completely describe characters. Um, think of the, the first Batman film with Michael Keaton in and uh, how he was nervous and Jack Nicholson said, kid, let the costume do the acting for you. It can yeah. be that overt or it can be as subtle as um, 
things like in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, where both the, the eldest Bennett sisters have the same gold chain and cross. Yeah. Um, to signify that, you know, they, they have similar tastes in things and they're very close. So it can be very subtle or very overt. Um, anyway, this is very particularly true of the unconventional female character in period dramas, and it can be done well. So an example of it being done well is the recent Gentleman Jack production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be done not so well, <laughs> shall we say. Yes. <laughs> and there's, there's, I mean, there's a few bugbears, but we're going to talk about one that is definitely one of mine. And, well, I think it might be one of Madeline's as well. I'm willing yeah. to lay money on it. <laughs> Um, so there is a scene that's almost universal in everything made since uh, 2000. Um, and there's no specific cues as to where it will turn up, but turn up, it will. Dragging misinformation and cringy self-righteousness righteousness behind it. Um, and you have probably seen a version of it, regardless of kind of what you watch. Now, in this scene... The young heroine is being laced tightly into a corset for the first time. She makes a comical face of surprise, and then there's a comment about not being able to breathe or how uncomfortable corsets are. Yeah, there's an example of this in Pirates of the Caribbean, um, where Elizabeth Swan is, is talking about, oh, yes, it's the latest fashion from London, but it's a bit tight, and she actually faints and falls over the cliff, which yeah. is very funny at the time. There's also a really bizarre scene in Alice in Wonderland um, with I want to say, I can never say her surname it's Mia was it Kalska, I want to say, I could be wrong yeah. um, but you know, it's the Disney most recent one and she, she just performs this act of, I, I think it's literally impossible to do, where she takes off her corset under her clothes and drops it at her antagonist's feet in a public garden. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I reject your idea of womanhood and growing up, etc. Even at the time where I wasn't quite so sensitised to this sort of scene, I was looking and thinking, that is such a weird thing to do. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like taking your knickers off in public and going, I don't like these. Yeah. I don't like what they stand for. It's it's yeah. It's just that's that's very very odd. Um, uh, and obviously there was also the one of the most recent um, iterations of Anne of Green Gables, Anne with an E, which both Jules and I I think did enjoy. Yeah. Um, but it it, it was one of the worst offenders. Yeah, it wasn't great. Pirates of the Caribbean almost sort of kind of kicked this off a little bit, but. The problem was that in Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, it kind of made sense. Yeah. Because the idea was that this wasn't the first time she was wearing a corset. She wore corsets all the time. It was the fact that she that there was this new fashion that was being brought in from London, and it didn't really fit her body type, and she was basically being squeezed into it for a particular occasion, and it was it did end up kind of being put up too tight. Now, the reality is that there were cases where um, certain fashions did result in women getting hurt and these fashions disappeared quite quickly. I mean, uh, crinoline and stuff like that was one of them. The amount of women who burned to death because of, of their skirts and stuff like that because they couldn't get them off. That was a real thing that happened. And there were sometimes problems with corsets, just like there have been problems in the modern day with people wearing certain types of clothing or 
trying to adhere to certain fashions in order to change their body shape and it resulting in injury, um, unconsciousness, even death. So that did happen, but it wasn't every single woman in the world every time they put on a corset. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the problem. You hear about the exceptions. Um, ultimately, I think with Elizabeth Swan, it is kind of the curious bodice, which went out of fashion again very, very quickly because doctors did start saying, you know, that's distorting the shape of the female body and it's damaging the ribs and the uterus. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's an issue. Um, that's actually moving your internal organs around. It's not good. Um, but aside from a hot five minutes in the French court, copied for a further hot five minutes across Europe, corsets were generally not laced that tightly. Um, it's a bit like when people say, oh, yes, the 13th and 14th century, where women had to wear chastity belts. And it's like, first of all, chastity belts may well have been a medieval joke. Yeah. Um, and anyone who did actually have one, well, women kept the keys to their own chastity belts, and they may have been preventative measures against rape, but they weren't common. Most people would have looked at them and gone, I'm not wearing that. And no yeah. husband would have ever tried to make their wife wear one. That was insane. What a stupid idea. Um, but everyone's gone, oh, chastity belts, that's something that actually happened, and it isn't really. And it's the same yeah. with um, with corsetry. And people don't consider that the enhanced hourglass figure that was produced was achieved just as much by clever dressmaking, padding, and emphasis. So think of things like the bustle, think of things like the panniers on the sides of the skirt, etc. Yes, and the other thing that a lot of people fail to also recognise is that they think, well, all these women had this exact shape. Where are you getting this information from? We don't actually have that many of these clothes left. Where do we? How do we know what the fashion looks like? Painting, paintings, portraits, um, illustrations. And just like with all the paintings, portraits, and illustrations that we see kind of in the modern day, um, they were flattering. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to put on your, your nightgown and your, I don't know, your scummiest over-robe with the curry stains on it and then not brush your hair so it looks like a bird's nest and then say, yeah, paint me warts and all, aren't you? Yeah, not everyone is, is Oliver Cromwell. No, um, Exactly. And and so, you know, you would see these kind of these designs, these images, women looking ultra thin. That doesn't mean that's actually what they looked like in person um, or that the shape was exactly like that. And yes, there were examples of people who had the right body shape for that particular style, um, who were very thin, who were very slight, etc. And it did just fit. Um, and we have some of those clothes. And... I, you know, it, the clothes which did survive tended to be those of uh, sort of very prestigious families who could also at the time afford to have basically the best of, of everything, yeah. which meant that they probably did have certain advantages and things like that, and clothes which were absolutely tailored to them, uh, which all clothes would be tailored. So... Yeah. I mean, frankly, there are photos of women with 14-inch waists. Um, yes. But they were taken in the same way the pictures of women with hair down to their ankles. The reason people photographed them was because they were unusual. They were the exception, not the rule. I mean, to be honest, with the 14-inch waist thing, there's a weird sort of vaguely pornographic freak thing going on as well. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing to consider is that not everybody wore a corset. Of course, it was actually a, ma- uh, a mark of status, particularly when you got to the Victorian era, because you needed somebody to be able to lace you into it. Now, while certain prostitutes wore the latest fashions because they could afford to, oddly enough, the prostitutes, most of them were paid a decent enough wage that they could afford good dresses made to their sizes and corsetry, they used what they call a pair of horse hooks. Yeah. Um, which they would reach over behind and literally use to lace themselves in, into a corset. Um, ladies, of course, this is why corsetry was a mark of status, would have their own ladies' maids in order to do it. Most working-class women wore stays, which were softer, um, were supportive, and you, you had a sort of gauzy bit that went over the shoulders and the back, and it basically just smoothed out the silhouette and supported the bust. Yes. What you do have to remember is that, for the most part, corsets and stays and stuff like that, yes, they were to help sort of smooth out the silhouette to give the, the kind of your dress shape, but they were also there as bras. <laughs> yeah, they were important pieces of supportive underwear. Yes. Um, and for the record, we've kind of been wearing some version of supportive chestwear, women, since, yeah. you know... <laughs> Try basically, there's a good chance we were wearing animal skins arranged in such ways to form breastbands because running around with your boobs flying free in the wind is not comfortable. And our ancestors were not stupid, that's why we're still here. So, the idea that this particular any form of this particular type of female underwear is is symbolic of female oppression is just you know laughable. Yeah, now I think. Again, it, we sort of see this um, the, the, the sort of the second wave sort of feminism coming in here, the burning of the bras and stuff like that, as if they are a form of oppression. And we do have to obviously recognise the fact that there are, of course, some people, some um, some tribes, uh, for example, who famously don't wear bras because they don't really wear any tops or anything like that at all. They also have a certain physicality. Um, certain and and it's a, and certain cultural things etc um but there was this kind of this idea obviously that went from the bra not just being a, a supportive thing but being something which was there to enhance the figure only for the male gaze and for that to be restrictive um and perhaps there was elements of truth in some respects to that. It was, you know, for people who didn't want to wear one, who might not need to wear one, who felt as if they were being forced to wear one by what culture dictated um, in order to hide, in order to be uncomfortable, in order to whatever. Um, but it's a more nuanced thing because there are also lots of people in the world who just actually wear bras for comfort uh, and who would have worn corsets for comfort etc yeah and it it's one of i think the thing is yes they're absolutely i mean the the triangular bras that gave you very perky pyramidal type boobs in the 1950s that sort of went along with the the American 1950s housewife aesthetic. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is a whole other kettle of fish that we won't get into because we're um, day drinking and Valium and yeah. all the rest of it. Um, that was not a healthy 
not a healthy system at all. Um, yeah, so there, there definitely was a thing. But what I would point out is that all of these things where women were dressed up to look a certain way, yes, it might have been appreciated by men, etc. But you could not have done that without the collusion of other women. And I've got a real issue with people saying, oh, men were enforcing this kind of mode of dress. And it's like, not without help, they weren't. They just weren't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway. So the final issue with the I can't breathe scene, um, which basically makes it bollocks, is that would not be, you, you don't suddenly get laced into a full adult corset. It just doesn't yeah. happen that way. Uh, girls would have been in training corsets from around eight or ten years old, and these are quite soft things without the whalebone that would have been wrapped around the torsos. Um, in the same way that girls are generally given vests and then crop tops as they start to get a bit older now. Mm. Um, or training bras even in some case you don't have to have anything to put in a training bra and you can you know I, i've always thought they're a bit weird but some people swore by them for posture and stuff as well um so yeah by the time they required a full corset for support the sensation would have been familiar and again they were in charge of how tightly it would have been laced so yeah so it seems like i um i've got a real bugbear here and i have a little bit because of how ridiculous it is uh but uh, my real problem is is what all of this kind of communicates in very simple, you know, sort of one-shot scenes uh, yeah. to viewers. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, because essentially you kind of... <sighs> Characters rejecting corsets is essentially rejecting feminine attributes. And it often goes hand in hand with rejecting all feminine attire. And I say feminine in inverted commas. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I've got two examples here. So there is my favourite Little Women from 1995 versus the Little Women adaptation in, I think it was 2021, but it might be a year out. So I'm sorry if I am. Um, the 1995 version has Winona Ryder playing Joe, mm -hmm. and the 2021 or whatever version has Saoirse Ronan. And great performances by both. They're essentially the same story. It's really noticed how differently they're dressed. And then you bring in the book here. Joe is an unconventional character. She's very free thinking. She's somewhat mannish in the way that she wants to approach things like study and maths and latin and stuff she's described as mannish for the time um and you know she's encouraged in her pursuits and, and gifts and stuff by her parents her parents want their daughters their four daughters to be well informed well educated and to perfect themselves as people so to always be looking at ways of perfecting their own characters uh, because their entire philosophy is kind of based on the, the German romantic theory of uh, transcendentalism which is really fascinating if you've got time to look into it by the way <laughs> um, but despite being unconventional, Jo in the 1995 version you'll notice that while she might be saying oh blast and whatever to her skirts and laughing and running and doing things in a way that girls wouldn't, she's not seeking to don a pair of trousers. She's not seeking in any way to take on a male role. In the books, yes, she prefers to be around boys than girls, but she adores her sisters and she dresses how she should do for you know her, 
her place in society, her place in life, she works within the confines of the system. Mm-hmm. And that includes things like wearing appropriate underwear and, um, you know, being active, but whilst wearing the, the right sort of dresses and skirts, etc. Um, if you look at the 2021 version, Saoirse Ronan has a skirt on and then the rest of her is quite mannishly dressed. Yeah. And it's clearly done to make her look different and free thinking and whatever but the problem is what it's suggesting is you can't be free thinking and intellectual and want to pursue a career as a writer and still dress like a woman yes (laughs) which is kind of an issue for me (laughs) yeah i completely agree and again this is also a problem of 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 it being overdone because if it wasn't overdone if it was, you know, this was just a, a design choice that they made for her character because they wanted to give a visual representation of this mannishness which is described in the books, you know, then you could have sort of gone, yeah, okay, we totally understand. She's not rejecting femininity. But because the trope exists, it triggers that understanding and that response in audiences. Yeah, And that's the problem, in that we now find ourselves unable to have individual character story arcs, because you can absolutely have a character who, who does decide, actually, I'm doing a lot of horse riding and I prefer being, um, I don't like the side saddle, I can't go as fast, or um, I'm not as secure in the saddle, or perhaps there isn't a side saddle, so actually I'm better off wearing trousers, etc. You can absolutely have a character like that. Um, or a character who really just doesn't like skirts or things like that, but who is still 100% certain of, you know, their, of their femininity, who's still 100% a, um, sort of a, a cis woman or whatever. Um, but now you can't, because any representation like that falls into this single idea, which is the rejection of femininity and the superiority of that rejection yeah um it was the same thing that kind of happened with anne of green gables you had anne of green gables the adaptation from 1985 and i think it when they extended it it finished in 1988 i believe Mm -hmm. what's really interesting is in the books the character of anne shirley is very she's got these sort of wafty romantic notions and with that comes this desperate yearning to be pretty to be conventionally pretty and also she would love she would love the beautiful gowns of silk with lace trimming um and her hair to be a fashionable color not red red hasn't been a fashionable color for a while now um, but, uh, it certainly wasn't then and you know to have lovely clear skin without freckles and etc she's actually quite vain about those things because it fits her romantic notion there's a point in the book where she tries to dye her hair black with disastrous consequences yeah. um, just so that she'll look a bit more the thing and this appears in both that 1985 version and in Anne with an E yeah. the difference is Anne of Green Gables the 80s adaptation um, starts off with Anne in little girl pinafores with straw boaters and plaits etc and then she gradually moves up and yeah. it's the costuming is very subtly shifted all the way through to show her maturation as a character, both in how she presents herself 
and, and the fact that she's becoming a young woman. What's yes. really interesting is Anne is an orphan, so she can't afford all these like fantastical gowns and things that she'd love to have. But her friend Diana, who is one of the people she loves best in the world, is actually quite wealthy and can afford these things. Modern in modern times that would become a bone of contention. You know, Anne would kind of become the not like the other girls thing and Diana would be the sort of like, oh well you're just a vacuous, you know, girly girl. But that's yeah. not what happens in the nineteen eighties version. Anne is delighted that Diana looks so beautifully turned out all the time, and Diana just thinks Anne's a lovely person. And when Anne finally does get the beautiful dress she wants, Diana's thrilled for her. It's really lovely, it's really well done. Um with Anne with an E she kind of goes through the phase and then rejects it she rejects the the sort of femininity the idea of wanting to appear beautiful and um, have a romantic life etc and it just doesn't fit the character and you you know the costuming is used to reject femininity rather than to show the fact that yes she's unconventional and she's free thinking etc but she also really likes pretty dresses (laughs) it's like why can't you have both yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's one scene where she actually holds a corset against herself and then makes this noise and throws it back into a trunk. Yeah, which is, again, feels kind of a bit funny because... Like, I won't wear my underwear today, I'm going commando. Yeah. But... <laughs> It is, yeah, it's, it's, it is one of those things because very much in the book, and in particular, it's the puffy sleeves. She really wants she those really puffy wants sleeves. Puffy sleeve, yeah, the leg of, the leg of mutton sleeves. Yes. <laughs> I think there's another consideration when using clothing to signal unconventionality, and that's the feminist angle, and that's where things start to get complicated. Yeah. Um, if you remember the famous portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft, who, in case people have forgotten, she wrote a vindication of the rights of women. So, you know, she was like the OG feminist. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you see her in this portrait, she is wearing the fashions of the time, which would it, you can see includes the corsetry of the time. If you look at her hair, her hair isn't long and pinned up. It's fashionably cropped into what is called a mullet, and there's a good chance there's pomade in it. And she has a fashionable what they call a turban it's not actually a turban but you know what they would have modeled this is what they modeled it on okay it's very culturally insensitive but it wasn't fashion at the time um yeah so even if you read some of her writing what she's talking about is the fact that women should not be thinking about adorning themselves to the exclusion of everything else they they should be permitted more than just being decorative objects that's what she's talking about in the vindication of the rights of women which you know is right and there are other things where she has a bit of a rant about some frilly stuff that she doesn't like but then we're all human (laughs) if you think about amelia bloomer guess where we got the name bloomers from (laughs) yeah (laughs) um well bloomers were kind of like these not too tight slight well basically slightly baggy trouser type things that gathered at the ankle so we're not talking the underwear and then the skirts would be cut to just below the knee and it was supposed to give greater movement, etc. Um, and Amelia Bloomer and um, Susan B. Anthony, who were both quite big proponents of women's rights, etc., started wearing these. And you know, they were 
they were moving around in them and they got looked at because apparently if you don't wear ankle length skirts men are really astounded to find that women have a pair of legs I know <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of an issue I think they think that you know Victorian men thought we were like <laughs> gliding around on casters or something like a hostess trolley <laughs> Anyway, that would be a funny wedding night. It really uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, my love, I don't have a human lower half. <laughs> I am actually part hostess trolley. <laughs> the little mermaid that... just became something completely different. Yeah, that's just the modern equivalent, which is just women are just rumbas underneath. <laughs> Okay, right. Trying to, try to get back on level. Um, anyway, Amelia Bloomer and Susan B. Anthony were sort of wore these things when they were we, they were making political speeches. Guess what got written about in the newspapers when they made these speeches? Do you think it was the excellent points that they were making about women's rights? No. <laughs> no. Whole columns were given over to the unusualness of their appearance and delicately inferring how much leg they were showing etc um, including an advertisement by one tailor who had actually who, who put an advert in the paper saying that Susan B. Anthony had been in his shop he had made for her three close form fitting pairs of trousers basically the bloomers, the pantaloons mm-hmm. um, and one skirt etc and that should any gentleman wish to see it the tailor's tape which back then was just a long reel of tape which you would have specific markings on so instead of like a tape measure like we use now it was a long roll of tape um, basically tailor's tape which was paper with this these coded markings and it was actually in some ways more accurate for making clothes mm-hmm. he'd put it on display in a glass cabinet and men could see it and ogle this tape that had measured these trousers that Susan B. Anthony was scandalously wearing for a shilling ago <laughs> And it's like, yeah, that tells you a lot about the time. Susan B. Anthony then went, yeah, you're not actually hearing my political message because all you can see is my legs. So what I'm going to do is dress conventionally and get what I'm saying written about. Uh, so she went back to wearing the long skirts, etc. Uh, again, if you look at Ada Lovelace, she is dressed to her station. She is dressed to uh, women would have worn at the time, despite being one of the most brilliant mathematicians of the age and inventing computer code. And then there's Elizabeth Blackwell, who in 1847 was the first woman to knowingly get admitted to a London medical college. Um, in all, you know, initially she was admitted as a joke because they thought, well, she'll fail and no other woman will ask. She actually qualified as a doctor. Um, one of the senior staff had told her that she ought to dress as a man to try and blend in, and she said no, because if I dress as a man, people will f- focus on the fact that I'm dressed as a man, and that maybe I think I'm a man, rather than the fact that women can get medical degrees and ought not to be kept out of university. Yeah. You work within the confines of the society you're in. Is yes. what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. And again, it shows the problem with sort of how how big this trope is now. Because once again, you could tell a story about someone who 
is having to work within those confines but actually still wants to push against those confines and is having trouble with that but the problem is that instead of that being a, a, an individual story about them and their particular experience it becomes a message against femininity yeah absolutely so basically great pioneering women affected change by working within the confines of the system and yeah. while this change was slow, steady, and probably not very sexy to write about, even now, um, that change did last and didn't cause massive backlashes. It didn't set off the blowback effect whereby people will just dig their heels in and not hear what you've got to say because you have challenged some fundamental worldview of theirs. Um, so that change has to happen gradually. You'll get far more bang for your buck if you take people by the hand and gently lead them to where you want them to go. It's something I think we really need to take note of now because what people seem to be doing is demanding that everyone just chucks out all the views and things they have before, which is what's making a lot of people who perhaps aren't ready for the change go, no, I'm not going to do that. Therefore, everything you say is wrong and I'm not going to listen to you. This is partly what's causing a lot of a lot of issues, I think. It's weird yeah. that it's linked to the not like the other girl trope and yet it is. <laughs> Yes, and once again, it, it's complicated, and that's the really big problem, is that there has been this this kind of push for everything to be simplified, for it to be simple, black and white, yes, no, etc. Um, and that's just not how things work, because I can understand people turning around and saying, well, it's not fair, I'm a woman, I don't and I want to dress in a certain way and I also want to be respected and heard. Why do I need to constrain myself just to be heard or listened to? Why do I need to conform to what makes other people comfortable just to be taken seriously? Um, and I can totally understand that. And I, I think, yes, you, you should be able to tell stories like that. But the problem is that that's not the story which is now being told. Instead, yeah. like I've said, the story that is being told is that there is something inherently wrong with femininity, um, with feminine fashions, etc. And not only does this affect women, cisgendered women, it actually affects everybody um, because it continues to perpetuate this idea that that maleness, cis maleness, is superior. Um, and that's the weird thing, is that in this attempt to say women are just as good as men, you've basically said, but in order to show the best of women, we have to give them what are typically male attributes. Um, and instead of basically saying well, hold on, there is no male or, or, or female attributes. There, there are just attributes which of individuals. You have created this men versus women sort of narrative in that you have these women rejecting femininity and then going, but we don't need the boys. Yeah. And so you create, you create this instead of say of, of it being about individuals and saying actually clothes shouldn't be gendered um, etc um, you know that people should be judged and allowed to be 
based on who they are as individuals, you have created a binary um, whilst pretending to try and reject the binary, but you're not. You've created the binary, you're reinforcing the binary, and you are reinforcing the superiority of one gender within that binary. Yeah. Which is the total opposite of what people want to do. Because first of all, we were, uh, this whole big movement at the moment has been to say, actually, there is no binary. There are lots of genders and there are lots of expressions, um, etc. And it's not what's happening. Yeah. So we have basically the not like the other girls trope in period drama doing the following. It perpetuates inaccuracies and misinformation, which is obviously very annoying for me. Um, it sort of scornfully disdains the other girls because, you know, the other girls happen to like pink dresses, etc. And you're saying something's wrong with that. And then you're distracting from the very issues the clothing is supposed to communicate. Um, overall, it's not a good look. <laughs> no. It isn't. Um, and as we said, it, it causes actually bigger problems beyond just the story itself in yeah. our society. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's look at the pushback issue in a bit more detail. Yes. So obviously the original trope absolutely needs to be highlighted as problematic. That's There's no question of that. Um, however, just like labels such as queer baiting, it is now being applied whenever a reader or reviewer doesn't like the way something was done or the fact that a character is acting in a way that is at all unusual or different. Um, and this is often without even considering the context of the story. Yeah. So, for example, I've seen it suggested in many instances that Katniss Everdeen of The Hunger Games is uh, not like the other girl character. And I find that laughable because in what way could she be? Um, seriously, this is a post-apocalyptic world where no one has the freedom to travel around and choose their own career or anything, and entire states are being kept oppressed by the yearly act of forcing their children to fight to the death. So what exactly is the norm that Katniss is supposed to be adhering to? And that's before you factor in the fact that she has been the breadwinner for her entire family because her mother emotionally checked out and her father died since she was 12 years old. There is literally no normal in that situation, and people are getting pissy because she's quite good with a bow. Yeah, and because she she doesn't, you know, isn't as obsessed. Or well, the thing is, it's like a you know, she she doesn't seem to be showing a lot of enthusiasm for the for the clothes and stuff like that. And it's like I don't know, I'm not sure how enthusiastic I would be about dresses and getting dressed up in fashion and stuff like that if I knew this was all part of the pageantry that was going to send me into the death pit. Yeah, it's you know? like, exactly at what point should she be like going, oh my god, it's so beautiful, and you know, tears misting her eyes and waving a hand in front of her face. When should she be doing that? What she's thinking about is surviving. Yes. <laughs> she cares about... That... Sorry. She cares about the clothes and the costume insofar as making people notice her so that they might send her food when she's starving in the arena. Yeah. So I, I, I agree, I don't understand people who were trying to sort of say that, but I think, again, it's the problem of, of how perpetuated this trope has been that people are now applying it to stories which are just meant to be individual stories without a context. 
Yeah, it's like people can now not tell the difference. And the weird thing is that both the trope itself and the strident calling out of the trope both restrict the idea of girlhood or being female to very narrow parameters. And it's complete bollocks because there are millions of ways to be female without being confined to small boxes of acceptability. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's just a mess. <laughs> and, and I think just it's it's fine to like dresses and makeup and want to look your best and enjoy the romantic attention and admira- uh, sorry the admiration of others. Um, it's equally fine to not like any of those things or to be sporty or bookish or anything else or to be a whole mixture because I know plenty of people who are sporty and bookish and who then still actually relish the chance of every now and again dressing up really nicely you know yeah. um, in fact I'm pretty sure that most girls will actually enjoy the chance of dressing up in some form or another and dressing up might not mean a full ball gown it could mean any number of things but yeah, I think that there are that and, and it's the same with just just everybody okay so it's absolutely fine <laughs> um so the problem is that the pushback against the trope is essentially going too far i think yeah um it's become a soundbite that people who may actually be well-meaning um or perhaps they're just being lazy to and don't want to do their own research but they will throw it about and sometimes they will do it very unfairly yeah i think so um okay thorny thorny topic now um not like the other girl trope and romance <laughs> yes so um, recently both Madeline and I read Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Sue Lin Tan I say recently but actually it was a year ago last January yeah it was <laughs> it's not that recent um, but I think we both enjoyed it and we both had a slightly different experience of one specific aspect and in my case it might be because I just didn't see it because I was really engaging with a different part of the story but yes. it really bugged you didn't it it did yes um which is the sort of the romantic the fact that just everybody seemed to be in love with her falling in love with her um and she wasn't ever described as being i mean she was an attractive character but there was this kind of the sense that she didn't see it herself she didn't see her own worth or the reason why anyone would sort of really want to fall in love with her and yet all the most powerful people she met um, you know, obviously the prince, uh, je- the general, and then I felt like there was another prince as well who was making moves on her. It, it, it all just seemed to be happening, and I thought, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I suppose, well, I can... When you said it, I thought about it and thought, well, okay, I suppose I kind of decided to deliberately overlook the whole, oh, I'm not really beautiful, or I'm beautiful, but I don't know it thing. Because that genuinely can be quite annoying, and I just went, I'm enjoying the story, I'm going to ignore that bit. Yeah. And I'm not a romance first reader, so I wasn't really looking out for it. I didn't care who she ended up with, to be honest. All I wanted was the adventure story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do see your point. I'm not sure about the third, the third guy, but you might be right, and I might be wrong there. But but yeah, um, here's the thing. Unless it's a major part of a character's arc and development and affects the story, everybody fancying the main character is really bloody annoying. Yes, it really, really is. Um, and I think <laughs> the other problem is that it, you, if you did want to have a character where a lot of people do sort of end up fancying them, 
Um, it feels a little bit ridiculous to me that the character would not recognize their own worth unless there is a, a very valid reason for it. You know? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I will say it is something that can, and you know, probably not infrequently, does happen in real life. Yes. There's a perfectly normal part of your teen years where you might have two or three or even more admirers. Um, yes. You know, people who are into you romantically. I think especially if you're a girl as well, that is something that, well, you know, that actually there are some boys who, from my perspective, I was like, all my friends are after them and I don't see it. What What is it that you can see that I, that I can't? Did I not get a pair of the special spectroscope type goggles that everyone else seems to have got with this yes, guy? Yes, I completely agree. And, you know, <laughs> it's again, it's the same thing is that, there, you know, I there were definitely people in sort of like year groups who there would be a dozen people who really liked them. But I do, and that is believable. I can totally understand that. I also know, you know, several cases where within friendship groups there would be, you know, some some of the girls, and several of the boys might have liked the same girl at the same time. Yeah. Um, that does absolutely happen. Um, but those are school settings, and those are school crushes. Yeah, that, that's also fair, and it, and that they don't tend to be very long lived either. It doesn't seem to be something that goes on for years and months in the face of all adversity, which I think is where it starts to strain credulity in in speculative fiction a little bit. Yes, um, and in and in, and I think again, it, this is another problem: is that obviously the um, the love triangle problem is that we have had so many of them that even now any kind of mention of people having even a passing interest suddenly feels like, oh god, we're falling back into that and we're sick of it. Um, the yeah. fact is that you could you can still write a good love triangle. You, you could can. still do that. But now everyone has just rejected it as being just inherently bad, which is not inherently bad. There are very few writing sort of tropes or things like that which are inherently bad. You know, you can, yeah. for the most part, make something work. But I think the other thing is that people are calling things love triangles, which aren't actually love triangles. Yeah, as well. Absolutely. And it's like, do you even know? What you're... Oh, I get really annoyed when people don't clearly don't know what they're talking about. But again, that's a that's a thing for the other day. That's a, that's another thing. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not impossible to include it in, include this sort of romantic. Everybody loves her. She's not like the other girls. She's different. Um, to include it in a story in a way that doesn't make your reader roll their eyes, but how the yeah. character reacts to this overwhelming level of romantic interest is important. And to be honest, it's kind of important in real life as well. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And again, I think the other thing is that. A lot of the people who I knew who did have a lot of, you know, people kind of actually who liked them, who had a lot of admirers, had a certain level of self-confidence. Yeah. Um, and knew, knew they were attractive. Um, and I've seen some interesting stories where actually you've had the cases where that's actually been a problem for them. Yeah. Um, and they have not liked the fact that they're attractive. They've not liked all the attention they're getting because of any number of reasons. So they've still been perhaps insecure 
and they felt that everyone is approaching them as only approaching them because of their good looks, but not necessarily because of who they are. Um, others have basically, you know, recognised the fact that they do have good chemistry with lots of people, and perhaps that is what's kind of also drawing them in. Um, or you, uh, you're the person who turns everybody down, and it becomes a competitive thing to see how who can get there first kind yeah. of thing. So you stop being a person, you become an object. Yeah. Which really sucks. <laughs> and I've seen, you know, a few examples also where actually the love is slower, is quieter. And I think this is one of the ones where it, again, it can work for me is that you can have stories where actually people fall in love with a character not because of the amazing abilities they have, uh, not because they seem to be naturally skilled or because they're beautiful and they don't know it or anything like that, but because they're kind yeah, and supportive and quietly people have fallen, a, a number of people have fallen in love with them almost to their surprise if that makes sense yeah um, definitely i i can i can absolutely I've, I've know several stories which have done that uh, like uh the fruits basket um did that um and it's and it's wonderful because the main character she's pretty she's not a great beauty or anything like that um she, but she's definitely not unattractive she doesn't have any moment where she goes oh i'm ugly or anything like that or she even compares herself to others she is quite feminine but the the the, the defining factor about her is that she is very kind yeah and that is what has drawn people in essentially yeah definitely um in a different in addition, even, <laughs> I, I honestly don't care if the main character is a great artist or a tiddlywinks champion, or they're just okay at everything. <laughs> there should be a point when the love interest should think they're marvellous, at least some of the time. Yeah. Um, if they can easily be exchanged with just any other girl, then that's not really a romantic connection, that's convenience. <laughs> yes. And again, this is also this is the <laughs> this is the, where the, the difference between a crush and a <laughs> and an actual romantic connection sort of comes in yeah i think um so if you do i think if you if you are reading a story and you're going oh everyone's in love with this character and then actually it's no no there's one there are some characters who admire her who might even lust after her uh, but perhaps that's mostly the idea of her rather than her as a as an actual person um which again is very realistic particularly if you have a main character who's out there doing all sorts of amazing things it is very normal for multiple people to then go oh well actually this is very interesting you like them and stuff like that we're even maybe romantically interested except it might not actually be romantic it might just be sort of admiration if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely okay our final section on this which we'll get through relatively quickly i think yes. is 
it's ba- it's a bit ranty i'm sorry um basically the not like the other girls trope and its relationship with absolutism you can say this of anything which people have gone yeah that's bad that's verboten kind of thing but it, it really does seem to tie into this one as well and it's yeah. something that genuinely troubles me and it a combination of being able to have these online conversations that kind of catch like a forest fire mm-hmm. um this sort of clannishness you know the clannishness of finding your people online isn't a bad thing in and of itself until you start being exclusive and exclusionary um and then there's this sort of weird self-involvement thing um where it's just resulted in this absolutist attitude on many subjects where basically you're either with me or against me which i find incredibly damaging and dangerous yeah um and it probably comes from a desire to enact some control on the universe which i do understand you know yeah Um, humans do not do well with uncertainty um, and they have the ability to see how uncertain everything really is I can understand wanting to draw up walls, perimeters to create some kind of sort of space in which you can control and understand things and regulate them yeah, definitely Um, however, this is not an excuse for for the vitriol and the bullying that actually emerge from it you know if your viewpoint is strong, well-reasoned and well-researched, then it can stand to be questioned. Um, it can even stand to be proved wrong and destroyed. Definitely. Uh, you know, if someone proves you wrong, you should thank them. You might not feel like thanking them straight away, but you should ultimately thank them because what they're doing is they're removing you from a state of error or even a state of ignorance. Um, What you shouldn't do is entrench your incorrect position and try to cancel them, nor should you take them just face value at their word. You should go away and check your facts and things and find out. But if you are wrong, I think you need to be willing to embrace being wrong. Yeah. Or to understand that there might be more nuance at the very least. Absolutely. Yeah. And and weirdly, this does reach ahead in the not-like-the-other-girls trope. Um, in its most extreme form, it appears to be seeking to obliterate individuality. Yeah. It kind of bugs me when readers criticise a female main character, and it is always a female main character. We do not subject male main characters to this sort of scrutiny. Um, and the reason for the criticism is that she's good at a specific and unusual skill. Um, even more incomprehensibly she's often worked her arse off to attain that skill and somehow that means she's getting above herself yeah um I think the sorry go on no no sorry it's just I see this leaking into real life and I'm I'm genuinely worried and I'm not sure whether it's jealousy or laziness or is it the fear that if you yourself raise your head above the parapet and reach for something more that you're going to get shot down is it yeah. is it just safer to be part of the crowd I, I i don't know i think the other side of it is that perhaps it, it kind of also stems from this idea that female characters are only acceptable if they are extraordinary but the problem is that actually most main characters need to be extraordinary in some way or another we don't tend to have that many characters who are just ordinary because we're not usually reading stuff, particularly in, in speculative fiction I mean in different forms of fiction, yes we do um, but 
they need to be extraordinary enough for you to want to keep reading, even if they yeah. are basically ordinary. Weirdly, yeah. I'm thinking of A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking, where she's actually yeah. not much of a mage, no. but she's very, very good at, at baking. It turns out that her baking magic, which is potentially quite ordinary, can be turned to some very extraordinary means. Yes. And ends uh, rather, not means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't mean means, I meant ends. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but yeah so I can see why some people sort of say well we actually we're really sick of these characters who are just incredible or amazing or things like that but again we don't give that same scrutiny to male characters though I do see it sometimes but it's just not nearly as prevalent it's never as vicious or as wide and it's never as vicious I've never seen people going after Batman in the same way that they go after some of these instead it's kind of like yeah well he's Batman Obviously, yeah. he's like this. It's like, can you not see the double standard? <laughs> yeah, or like with Tony Stark, where you're just there, like, no one's going after Tony Stark for being all of these things. Oh my god, and the endless romances, and I'm not having a diss at romance people. If this is your jam, then, you know, I see you and respect, etc. But the endless romances where he's a billionaire helicopter pilot just looking for the one woman, etc. Um, and it's just like, the, it, it's the fantasy it's the wish fulfillment why can there not be the fantasy and the wish fulfillment of someone who maybe starts off quite ordinary and attains extraordinary things what's wrong with that yeah and I think actually one of the big issues the big problems is that it is about the fantasy and the fantasy is you know is they're basically saying that these that female readers and because female readers really are the ones who are perpetuating this, read a story and they want to be able to insert themselves into the main character. And so they want the main character to be everything, but also not to be anything. If that makes sense. Yeah, I follow that. And it's basically, we're not supposed to all be a faceless, shapeless, nameless morass where no one stands out for anything. Um, We survived as a species because many of us embody curiosity, intelligence, foresight, and a sense of adventure. And we will only continue to thrive as a species if we keep doing those things. That doesn't mean that you have to be good at everything. I mean, there could be escapism in reading about someone who can do things you could never do. Um, Yes. I'm I'm trying to think of something. Uh, of an example where I don't necessarily want to be every main character I've read about. I don't even necessarily want to be all my own main characters. Yeah, they have a miserable time. (laughs) (laughs) They do have a miserable time. Even though they do do quite cool stuff, but at the same time, it's like, that's balanced by some pretty hefty price tag. And also, all that travelling Amy is now doing, I'm like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is the difference between you and me, because I do. Uh... It's like yeah, but not on that le- not on that level. Um, I I remember Ursula K. Le Guin um, being interviewed about um, her. Which one was it? I'm trying to remember. But basically, it was her. Her, uh, I think it was Sparhawk, and she was talking about her characters and saying, "Well, there'll always be someone in there that the author most identifies with." And then I think I was about ten at the time. I was astounded that she identified most with one of the old ladies of the island who sat around drinking rush um, red bush tea or or rush bush tea or whatever it was called and i'm thinking but but you could identify with sparhawk and be an adventurer and a mage 
and now I'm in my mid-40s and I'm like, no, I totally see what you were going for there. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of with you. I was like, no, I'm leaving you the adventuring. <laughs> I will do it vicariously. I will sit at home with my cats and my tea and my books. Thank you. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, and I think, again, it is this, it's this power struggle between women saying we want character female characters who are just as capable just as savvy as sort of these male characters are and then women also saying we why is it that female characters are only acceptable if they are everything all at once why can't they be ordinary because essentially it's the and and that is the whole sort of why do we have to have this not like the other girls trope? Because again, there seems to be this idea that in order to create a savvy, well-written female character, she has to embody male, typically male attributes. Yeah. Um, and she has to reject femininity. Or she has to literally be perfect to everything, where whereby she's seems to reject sort of femininity in every way uh, she seems to be out doing all these particular things and then the next thing you know is that she's there in a ball gown etc and she's completely embraced all these things and stuff like that always makes me kind of raise my eyebrows because I think that unless you're superhuman and I say this from experience um, and I'm sure that Jules is the same thing is that we did martial arts we did martial <laughs> arts for a long time you know what happens when you do martial arts you are covered in bruises constantly yes. <laughs> okay particularly if you're doing a lot of fighting you are bruised to the hilt okay something always hurts alright it is very difficult to then go into out in a strapless dress without looking like you've been abused okay <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And then if you add in all the conditioning exercises where you are literally just smashing your forearms against someone else's forearms in order to build up callus so you won't bruise as easily. I yeah. used to go off to Gashku's and I would come back and my arm would be black and blue from my wrist to my elbow. Yeah, same so, thing. Yeah, and same um, with my shins as well. It looked really awful. Probably was yeah. really awful in hindsight. But. Yeah, and the other thing is that, you know because of the sports and stuff that I did and, and also just because of my kind of biology. I have really wide shoulders and stuff like that. Um, and yet, with these kind of this, these female characters, they're out there kicking ass, you know, you have Scarlett Johansson kicking, doing all these kind of amazing feats, and you're like, yes, she's acrobatic and stuff like that. Do you know the actual strength it requires to do half these things? Do you know how bruised you'd be constantly? And how muscular you would actually be? And how muscular be? you'd actually have to be, you know. Um, you see any gymnast who competes at a professional level and their shoulders are huge Yes. in comparison. And their arms are extremely... I mean, all of them is muscled, uh, is muscled, but basically, particularly for the women, it's very noticeable how heavily muscled their arms and shoulders are. Yes. So, yes, that's where it gets a little bit unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the problem, is that, uh, you know, certainly for me, is that I look at it and people basically say, I'm not like... The, Paul V, I'm not like the other girls trope except the fact is that they are then still conventionally look like the other girls as it were or look like what we tell women they're supposed to look like 
Yeah. And are fulfilling all of that whilst also, you know, rejecting it. And it it creates this character who is unlikable, un you know, can't you can't connect with them in any shape or form. Um and it just feels very, very strange. Yeah. Although, again, I think the whole not like the other girls trope is now largely going underground, particularly in, in fiction, but also in film and what have you. And yeah. what you, you get instead is this sort of insidious rejection of all things female. Yeah. Which, um, which is as bad, if not worse. Yeah. So anyway, rant over, but there's a few takeaway points. Hopefully you're still awake. Anyone who's listening. <laughs> um, <Sorry. laughs> the, the trope is not going away. It's finding new places to hide, usually in plain sight. Yeah. Proper characterization and consideration of plot structure will do a lot to avoid the issue. Big time. Um, yeah. Romantic subplots require the lead to be perceived as different by the love interest, at least. But that doesn't mean everybody else has to think that they're all that. <laughs> yes. Um Working hard to be better than others at a skill is laudable, not a source of shame. And context is essential. Yes. Um, and I think the fact is that you can always be wrong, so get comfortable with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's be honest, nobody likes being wrong. I don't like being wrong, but I'm okay with being wrong, because ultimately being wrong and knowing it and changing my opinion on something causes a lot less pain in the long run to believing something and sticking to it and refusing to hear anyone else's opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, <laughs> I mean, I think part of that is also the way in which people tell others that they're wrong. If, it's, if you tell someone that they're wrong and it's a personal attack, then they will take it personally. Um, and perhaps some people will tr will try and rise above that and be logical about it. Um, I know that that's something that both Jules and I try to do. Um, you know, as we said, if someone has pointed out something that's that you've got wrong, then being able to take a step back, look at it, and actually really consider things is important for growth. Um, but yeah, it's it's a mess and we don't have time to get into that so we're not going to <laughs> <laughs> yeah everything goes a lot easier if you take ego out of it where appropriate yes i've found yeah anyway so wrapping this episode up <laughs> um it's now time for our dissect well in fact actually we should have said at the beginning but if you have opinions on this we would love to hear them as well do you find the not the not like the other girls trope to be an, an insidious creeper or do you does it not bother you? Does it not really strike you at all? You like your characters to be well differentiated? Or do you like them genuinely to be not like the other girls and have loads of candy? Let us know. Yeah. Um, and also, do you do you have examples of characters who other people have said fall into that trope, but who you feel don't? Um, you know, as always, we love to hear other people's points of view, other people's kind of thoughts. Um, so, yeah, please do get in contact with us. Now it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week, and this week I have got one for you. Okay, so uh, those who know me um, will know that I love uh, the the myth of, or, or rather the saga of Journey to the West. 
which uh, even though I know it's called Journey to the West, I always call Monkey because of the yes, series. Because, <laughs> because yeah. of the series. I'm so sorry. Yes. Even as no, you were saying it, I was like, Monkey! Monkey, yes. The thing is, you can call it Journey to the West. Uh, most people call it Monkey King or Monkey um, uh, just because... <laughs> <laughs> the fact is like it's meant to be this story about this monk taking <laughs> going to fetch these scriptures but the fact is that everyone knows that the main character is the monkey king everyone loves the monkey everyone loves the monkey king and to be fair the beginning of journey to the west the whole first section is literally just his origin story so he's incredible um and it is a brilliant brilliant um story uh there are lots and lots of adaptations of it um and a lot of a lot of translations as well, um, and I love to consume them all. Um, and I have been continuously seeking a modern, enjoyable adaptation that I can read, which sort of sort of modernizes it a little bit. And there's lots and lots of current reincarnations, but I have found one which is fantastic in that it is modern, it's easy to read, uh, but it is also actually quite faithful whilst also creating this lovely sense of characterization. And it is a graphic novel uh, by uh, Chaiko Tsai. I think that's how you say it. Say his name. Um, he's usually just written as uh, Chaiko and it is the Monkey King um, Journey to the West and you can, right now, you can get um, the Monkey King, the Complete Odyssey, which is a collection of all of, of the graphic novels all in one you can get it, I think it's just a little bit above £20 and it is brilliant it is such a fantastic way of sort of reading um, the journey to the west particularly if you haven't um, read it yet um, or if you're kind of only passingly familiar with it or if you're having trouble actually reading the translations or the adaptations of the book um, which can feel quite dense this is a great way to sort of get into it to learn about the characters the art is fantastic um, the story is well paced and I have just been so thrilled with it so definitely check it out guys it is well worth it cool that sounds amazing it really is <laughs> come and join me <laughs> join my obsession the monkey fandom yes <laughs> and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 